And you said, that's the wrong question. The question should be, did you feel empowered by your birth? And I think that's a question we can ask ourselves about uh, so many, about anything in our life. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. On today's episode of the Find Your Voice podcast, I talk with business owner, professional suitcase packer, certified yoga teacher, dreamer, and author, Brittany Ross. Brittany is the CEO and founder of the anti-human trafficking nonprofit Mission 108, which runs a safe home in India for girls rescued out of sex trafficking. She is a mother, wife, friend, and constant spiritual seeker. She's also become a friend to me in the past year as I've helped her get a publishing contract for her first book. A few things you should know about Brittany before you listen to today's episode. First, she's an Enneagram 4, just like me. And if you don't know what the Enneagram is, no stress. You don't need to know that to listen to today's episode. But if you do know what the Enneagram is, you'll understand why there are so many points in the conversation where Brittany says something that leaves me sort of speechless. She and I just seem to get each other on so many things. And second, Brittany is married to a professional baseball player. Usually I wouldn't consider a woman's husband's profession as necessary context for an interview with her. But since we touch on this specifically in our conversation today, I wanted you to know that detail going in. We talk about what it's like to marry into a culture where certain things are expected of you. And I'm going to guess that even if you aren't married to a professional athlete, you can resonate with this sentiment too. The conversation I have with Brittany takes a different direction than I expected it to take. I knew, as always, that we'd talk about writing and publishing and her book, but you'll be glad to know that we also talk about womanhood, motherhood, life, faith, and you're especially going to love what Brittany has to say about how our kids help us find our voice. You're going to love Brittany as much as I do. I know that to be true. So here we go. Let's dive right in. All right. I'm here with Brittany Ross. Hi, Brittany. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. I'm so honored to be on your podcast. This is going to be so fun. So many things I want to talk to you about. As always, I feel like I always have a thousand things I want to talk about. But I'll start with the question that I always start with with these interviews, which is what does it mean for you to find your voice? Yeah, I think that's what a lot of us in our 20s and 30s and maybe even 40s are asking ourselves, especially right now, I think it's evolving for me. Who I was 10 years ago is not who I am today. I became a mom overnight, which we can talk about maybe a little bit later, but I think I definitely found my voice when I became a mom through adoption. And then again, when I was pregnant and my fertility was kind of in question for a long time. And I really had to learn how to advocate for myself as a woman and a woman of color and, and just all of the things that, you know, a lot of us are facing. I think it's something that evolves as we grow. I don't know that I believe that finding your voice is this place you land. I think that we'll probably always be, if we're really pursuing a life worth 
living and a life of joy, then we're always going to be finding our voice. I love that. I, I agree with you completely. I, this wasn't the direction I was going to go after this, but you talked about how finding your voice, how becoming a mother helped you to find your voice. And I saw you post something on Instagram the other day about how becoming a mother has changed you completely. Mm-hmm. And of course this jumped out at me cause I'm a brand new mother. My daughter's nine weeks old. Mm-hmm. So can you just talk a little bit more about that? Cause I'm fascinated to hear. I, I, I feel that in my bones that it has yeah. changed me completely, but talk a little bit more about what that means for you. Yeah. I mean, the best thing that I can say is the day that I became a mom twice, I'm a, I'm a mom of two girls, but both times when I met my daughter, no one prepared me that I was going to be reborn. And I mean, I became a mom first through adoption and I will never forget the moment that my daughter's birth mom put her into my arms. And there was this moment where we held on to each other, both of us holding our baby. And it was just this silent understanding that the three of us would always share something that no one else would ever know or understand. And I think in that moment, I understood the divine in a way that I had never, ever understood God or whatever you want to call like a higher power before. And I think becoming a mom through adoption first helped me understand I don't have to keep explaining myself. You know, I've, I've always been a little bit different. I'm a biracial girl with big curly hair, raised in the South, kind of outspoken on some topics. And I've never really fit in, but I think I've always had the desire to explain myself and wanting to be understood. That might be a little bit of the, the Enneagram 4 in me. But becoming a mom the first time, I just was like, you know what? I'm not going to keep explaining myself at all anymore. And, you know, it's a daily thing. It's a commitment. Obviously, I didn't just like wake up one day and decide not to. And then I think I became brand new again when I gave birth because, Allie, I'm sure you are processing all of this, but like women are insane. We are crazy. Like, we are the. I don't, there's not even a word for what women are. We, we're, we're undervalued because once you've given birth, you know, I think we give birth to a hundred different things in a lifetime. The way that we look at birth, especially in America is crazy. Just the expectation on women and how birth is supposed to go and what we expect of women, even just the position in which our bodies are put uh, laying on our backs. A lot of times to give birth, it's just, it doesn't value a woman And I think on a subconscious level, a lot of us don't even realize the power that we hold. And I think when I gave birth and having been through miscarriage and infertility and and seriously doubting my body and not trusting myself at all, I think what I realized is like, I am trustworthy. And I was given this role to be my daughter's mother. And that is that is, I mean, I've heard other mothers say this, but I think it's just something you you only really understand when you've been through it. Like that is world changing and, and women are changing the world. And I think that is why society is kind of prone towards undervaluing us is because we really do 
hold the power to heal generations of trauma and generations of (laughs) issues that we're going through right now. I don't know about you, but I just changed completely. And I'm on year two and a half of being a mom and I'm still every day waking up. I'm brand new. I mean, every day I'm just, I'm new and I'm changing my kids. Yeah. I, that resonates with me completely. I, I remember thinking when I was pregnant, even that, that I thought before I was pregnant, that pregnancy would be like this part-time thing that I would kind of do on the side and I could still basically do my life exactly the way that I had done it before. So my plan being pregnant was to like, you know, I'm just giving, giving listeners like an image of how insane I was thinking like that I would like still get up and like go for a five mile run in the morning. And that I would like, you know, work my normal 10 to 12 hour day. And I'd like hop on an airplane and fly somewhere and speak and then fly home. And when I got pregnant, I realized like, oh my gosh, everything has changed. Yeah, There's not one thing that this experience has not touched or altered in some way. And becoming a mom, it's been even more, that has been even more amplified, I would say. Exactly what you're talking about, that there, it's like a radical adjustment of my priorities. Whereas before mm-hmm. I had a really hard time setting boundaries because I'd be like, no, I can do that. I can totally do that. I'm, I'm fine. I've got this and I'm juggling all these balls. And now it's like you have this thing in front of you that's capturing your attention in such an amazing way. And it has it's weirdly like empowered me to be like, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to deal with your drama. No, I'm yes. talking to you. No, I'm not going to come to that you know event or whatever. What you're saying resonates in a huge way. And I also, this is not at all the direction I saw this conversation going, but I want to add this something you told me because- this was so huge for me after I gave birth to Nella. I had um, a fairly like intense delivery. There were just some scary things that happened along the way. So you and I were Marco Poloing. After I gave birth, I was going to visit my daughter in the NICU. And, oh, I was telling you about how I had had an epidural. And your response to me, because you and I both also did a similar birthing class, Mm-hmm. That focuses on giving uh, natural birth. And you said to me that after you gave birth, people would say to you, Oh, did the class work? Yeah. And mm-hmm. you said, like, the thing that bugged you about that was that what they were really asking was, Were you able to have a, like a drug free delivery? Yeah. A natural delivery. And you said, That's the wrong question. The question mm-hmm. should be, Did you feel empowered by your birth? And the reason I'm bringing that question up now it first of all it had such a huge impact on me I thought I just held that in my brain I have held it in my brain as I've processed the way that the birth unfolded Mm -hmm. and that's been the filter that I've used to think about whether or not for example to call a certain part of the experience traumatic or or Mm -hmm. to call it something different because even though the experience was intense the, the answer to that question is yes I felt empowered by so many parts of the birth and I think that's a question we can ask ourselves about uh, so many, about anything in our life, you know, r- rather than like, did you win the award or did you, you know, did you get accepted to that school or did you whatever fill in the blank thing, but did you feel empowered by the way you handle that situation? Yeah. It's a more productive question to, to answer. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And I could talk about this forever because it is just like, the point of the birthing class that we did is not to have 
I kept telling people during my pregnancy, it's more about, I want to have as little intervention as, as necessary. And if that means that my, my pregnancy or my birth ends in a C-section, well, I haven't failed at all. If it ends in a Mm -hmm. C-section, if I made the decision or if me and our, you know, team of doctors or midwives, or even the baby spoke to me and was like, get me out now, then is what matters. Not, did you have a certain type of medication? And yeah, I mean, I think that that is the question that we need to start asking women is because there are, there are traumatic births that I do think doctors end up taking advantage when you're in like the most vulnerable situation you ever be in. I think that is what matters is, did you feel empowered and, and yeah, I mean, I think that's what, what is the most important thing. I love that. Okay. So I want to talk about, as it relates to finding your voice, I know you have married a man who has a a public career. You've traveled all over with him. And I'm curious what that experience for you, how that experience has impacted or played into your own ability to find your voice. Because you're also, you can talk a little bit about your husband's career, but from what I gather, there's also, you're a part of this small community of people or relatively small where there's an expectation of how you're supposed to act and dress and look and be and present yourself. And so I'm just curious what, if you could talk about that a little bit about what that has done for you as it relates to finding your voice. Totally. Yeah. This is, this is really important because I think it pertains to, I can, my husband is a professional baseball player. Uh, He played for the Texas Rangers and the Boston Red Sox for I guess it's been a decade now and now he's kind of in transition, but I think baseball has definitely amplified this finding your voice issue, I think in women. But when I look at a lot of women and in who they're married to, I can say that honestly, it's something that a lot of women are going through, uh, especially pastors wives. I've talked a lot to women who are married to pastors and just the isolation and the loneliness that they go through because there's an expectation for them to behave a certain way. The first, I will say the first like couple years I was a, they call us baseball wives, which I still have like weird feelings about that term. But <laughs> the first couple years that I realized. being defined by your husband's job, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember like walking into several rooms that those first couple years and then people would look at me and say, and who's your husband? Like not even ask my name, just who, who and still like in those first couple years, people would not say my name. Like fans would say Robbie Ross's wife. And no matter, I, we also got married really young. So I entered into this world when I was literally a child and I think I was barely 20. I wasn't even 21. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously your whole, your entire twenties is about finding who you are and finding what you love and what you're passionate about. But when the outside world is, is watching you do that, and then also putting names and titles and roles and expectations on you, it's really hard. And I think it's really easy to lose yourself. I went the opposite direction where that felt like a cage to me. And I was like, I look back and I'm like, there, there are so many times where I did use my voice and I was desperate to find my voice as lost as I was, you know, inside of my own life. I am still so proud of that girl that really tried hard to say, no, like this does not define me, but it's a journey. I think it was, 
especially difficult because the expectation is just to be a trophy wife and to say all of the right things. And when you are not that way, I call it like the Pinterest wife. Um, (laughs) I am just not Pinteresty. Like I cannot get it right. I cannot do all of those things that the South and evangelical Christianity and Pinterest and all of those things require well and with a smile and at the end of the day feel like I'm aligning with my purpose. I do think that there are some women who can, but just it is not indicative of, of me. It's not who I am. And so I tried really hard for years and years and years to be that and to fit into that. And then I don't know if one day I just woke up and I was just like enough or slowly and quietly, I just kind of tiptoed my way out of that cage. But I, I mean, I'm just, I'm on a mission really in my life to see women set free of the cages mm-hmm. that they find themselves in and the handcuffs that we put ourselves in a lot of times. And baseball just amplified that for me. And I think I learned it maybe a little bit quicker than some people yeah. I remember living in the South and being like, how do women keep their nails painted so beautifully all the time? It's like, how do you have time for this? And how do you have the patience? I don't know. I feel like I would have to paint my nails probably twice a day to get them to look that beautiful all the time. And with a smile. And with a smile. I could do all of this, but I can't smile about it. And so I was (laughs) like, I have to choose one. Am I going to be happy or am I going to be well put together? (laughs) Yeah. Do can you, Point your finger at a moment where you kind of broke free of that mold or that environment, or was it a slow process for you of unfolding to your truest self? I think it has been a slow process, but I can definitely pinpoint moments where I was like, this is not it. One, I think, was on Twitter. Well, you know what? Actually, when my husband was on the Texas Rangers, if you've ever been in Texas, you know that it is... 1 million degrees in the summer. And I remember sitting in a wives meeting. We did have wives meetings. Everyone thinks that that's like, like some sort of like cult thing, but the wives would always meet and like go over the rules and expectations and all that stuff. And I remember a veteran wife telling all of the younger wives that we are not allowed to wear shorts to the game. I mean, triple digits. It's almost as if you're walking around with a blow dryer in your face at all times when you live in Texas, in Dallas. And I remember being so confused because like, I was like, no one ever told me that shorts weren't an appropriate thing to wear. Where have I been all of my life? Like, am I missing some sort of rule book? Like, and, and then realizing, okay, and I have to wear, I have to follow these rules. And I remember another wife, she'd been in the organization for a couple of years, like raising her hand and, and saying and asking why. And the, the veteran wife said, because you never know who's watching you. You never know when you're going to be interviewed. And we are a representation of who our husband's, of our husband's brand. Oh, geez. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and so that was, that was a moment where I was like, yeah, no. I don't think that this is for me. What causes us as women, and this is a big question, but what causes us as women to go there and stay there? I don't know. Like, what's the draw, I guess? Or or is it just, is it just falling in line with what society has expected of us? Or 
Yeah. I don't know. It's a big question. I don't know if you have thoughts about that. I think it trickles down from, from generations of misogyny that's been excused. Hmm. And I think when, you know, I can say that that wife, that veteran wife that made those rules, I guarantee you that some other wife gave her those rules and it stems back as early as the beginning of time, really, where women have been told that our identity and our worth is directly tied to who we're married to, who we love, the way we dress, the size of our body. And we just are tired because we're raising babies and we're we're healing the world. And so I think sometimes we appropriate things that are not appropriate at all. And I just think that sometimes it's easier to fall in line than to say, actually, no, I'm going to step out of line here. Yeah. So true. Can we talk a little bit about your journey with infertility and how you became a mother. You have such a powerful story here. You've been working on writing a book about it and we'll talk about the book in a minute. Walk us through a short version, like an overview of starting with wanting to be a mother and trying to get pregnant. So my husband and I got married, always knew that we wanted to have biological children and adopt. I was in the midst of doing international development work and traveling all over. And one day found that I found out that I was pregnant was a total surprise. We were not trying at all. And I miscarried 10 weeks later and then miscarried three times and realized after three miscarriages, you know, I, this is a big, this is not normal or common. No one that I knew was miscarrying. And so I ended up going through a series of testing and fertility testing and the doctor deemed me or I don't know, I guess deemed is the right word, (laughs) told me that I was infertile and my only shot at a healthy and safe full-term pregnancy would be through IVF. And because of baseball and just timing and the way we traveled all the time, I really was putting IVF off. I didn't want to do it, but had planned to start IVF at the same time as we started the adoption process. And then also because of my husband's job, we were only eligible for adoption in certain places. We thought we would do international adoption, but ended up deciding to do a private adoption in the States. And that one fell through. The first adoption fell through. The mom decided to parent. And then 10 days after that, we got a phone call from a social worker that a baby had already been born and she she needed a home. Were we willing to be her parents? And we essentially became parents overnight. Wow. Uh, yeah. On a Friday, we met her birth mom and then brought her home on that next, the following Monday. And at that point I realized I don't need to have biological children. I'm, I'm okay with the diagnosis of infertility. My desire to become a mom has been fulfilled. That's right around the time that I met you. And I was like, I'm good. I can skip over pregnancy. Pregnancy always seemed like this terrifying thing to me. And then when my daughter was 13 months old, I found out that I was pregnant (laughs) for the fourth time. And so that was a big shocker. And were you worried when you found out you were pregnant about the possibility of miscarriage again? So deep in my gut, I think we've talked about this deep down in my gut. I always knew that I would get pregnant again. And I always knew that I would I always thought that I would have a biological child no matter what. Obviously, that was just a feeling that I I wasn't like sure about until, you know, hindsight. So I had the the moment that I looked at my 
fourth positive pregnancy test, I had about three days of just joy, like no one can rob me of this. And then reality set in. And for the remainder of the the nine months of my pregnancy, I was terrified every single day. Hmm. Wow. So then your second daughter is born, River is born. And talk to us a little bit about the process of just becoming a mother for the second time and bringing this other little girl into your family. I love this question because everyone told me when I was, I, I told everyone when I was pregnant, I'm never getting pregnant again. I'm so done with this. Like I am not one of those women that, like you said, I think I imagined pregnancy to be this part-time thing. And I, it wasn't, it was all encompassing. It was very hard on me physically. And then the emotional and spiritual aspect of just the fear. And I was really, after River was born, I was like, I'm so done with this. And everyone told me, just wait, just wait. She's almost, she's eight months old. And I'm, I know that's still pretty soon after, but I can just tell you, I think women spend so much of their twenties and thirties trying so hard to become a mom or to become a wife or to become a career woman. And once you know, even if we do have more children, the fact that I I am done trying to become something like I'm done trying and aiming and pursuing and just that crawling on your knees feeling of trying so hard, I'm ready to put that to bed. It feels like freedom. You know, that feeling where you're just you keep trying to get to the next thing. And, and now I'm like, Oh, I don't have to do that anymore in this, in this one little pocket of my life. And I, I mean, I've told Robbie, maybe a baby will show up on our doorstep. I don't know. And if that's the case, then we can, we can talk about adding to our family, but as far as trying really hard, we are done and it feels really good. It's so interesting that you say that right now in that those exact words, because I feel like I had this epiphany yesterday, just yesterday, where I realized a really limiting belief that I carry around is that you only really get good things by trying hard to get them. And so this is the way it works, right? Like you, something comes to light, you realize you were having a judgment about yourself or about other people that you didn't realize you were having. So it wasn't like I was consciously having this judgment about other people or about myself, but the judgment that I would have would be when someone was struggling in an area or when I was struggling in an area, well, you just aren't trying hard enough. Yeah. And it was just yesterday I was walking outside and I don't know why I had this epiphany, but I realized that I've been carrying around this limiting belief. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, how ridiculous is that to think that we would have to try hard? Cause all the good things that I've gotten in my life. I mean, my husband and I got pregnant immediately after we were married and um, I know enough to know I've had so many friends struggle with infertility and I was actually married before and tried to get pregnant for two and a half years and never got pregnant. So, Mm -hmm. so I know enough to know that like you can try hard at a thing and, and not have it come to fruition. And then with literally without trying in the slightest, my husband and I got pregnant with our daughter. And so, you know, everything that's evolved in this world has come without, without any effort really at all. That doesn't mean it's come without pain or, or energy, but it's come without effort. And so I just started thinking like, where did I get this idea that we only get good things in life if we really try hard to get them. And actually most of the suffering I've created for myself has been because I'm trying hard to get something or become something that just isn't, it's not present for me right there. It's not 
the fruit that's being born in that season. I totally agree with that. My husband always tells me, my husband's the exact opposite of me and he just like gets things in life a lot quicker. And he always tells me if it's forced, it's of the flesh. If it flows, it's of the spirit. Mm. And wow. that's been true in my life. It's been yeah. true. It's so hard to get there because yeah. it requires a level of surrender. It requires a death of our ego to say, there's nothing I can do to get the things that I want to get in my life. Or there's very little I can do. I can only do what I can do, basically. Yeah, I'm obsessed with control. Like, I love to believe if I can just do these three things, yeah, you control it and then I'll get my way. I love believing that. <laughs> yeah, 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 same. I know. And I think for all the suffering that coronavirus has brought into our lives and world, I will say the one thing that it's done that seems really positive is it's challenged our ideas of control because none of us have control anyway. But in the first world, and especially in, you know, one of the richest, most affluent countries and time periods of all of human history, it's easy to believe that we do have control. And I think that what this time period has done for us the last six months is just reminded us that we actually don't have nearly as much control as we think we do. Yeah. Let's talk about your book, because you, you and I met maybe, what has it been a year now? A year ago? Yeah, probably a little over a year. Oh yeah. In person. Yes. So you, you flew out to California. You came to my house. I helped you with this book that you're working on that follows your journey of coming into your own as a mother and as a woman. And really it's, it's a process of learning to find your voice in different Mm -hmm. words. I've just been so moved and inspired by your journey. And you and I have become friends throughout the process And I want to hear what it's been like for you to take this personal journey that you've been on and record it in writing. I can say I probably 50% of the time it feels amazing and writing your story feels like therapy. And it obviously feels really good when you share something really vulnerable. And then the feedback is, wow, you really helped me realize this or you've made me feel less alone. And then the other 50% of the time, I think it's Brene Brown who says she just wants to throw her computer across the room <laughs> writing. I think maybe it's yeah. Brene. And, and she talks I, about the vulnerability hangovers too. Yes. Which yeah. Yeah. It's equal parts. It's definitely and both. Because while you're writing, a lot of times I think people think that writers know what they think before they write it. Yeah. And that's not always the case for me. I, I definitely realize a lot about myself as I'm writing. And a lot of times what shows up in front of people's face and what they read that you've written is not the first thing that you've written. You know, there's, there's like the journal entries and the diary entries, and then there's what makes its way out into the world. And I think it's just been a process of really me learning how to trust myself in everything. And that. Oftentimes, the loud voices are not the ones that I need to listen to. It's like reconnecting to myself, trying to hear my own voice. And that's what writing has been for me. And in my process of becoming a mom, it's been learning to trust myself. And, you know, we wouldn't have had Gypsy if I had done IVF. And then we also wouldn't have had River. And, and those 
tiny pieces that it took me really going against what everyone was telling me. Every single doctor that I saw said, this will never happen for you. And, but I just was like, but it might. And, and so it's been in that way, me trusting myself, but then also just in a spiritual way and, and being vulnerable enough to share your story and, and hope that it's, you know, taken care of in a sense. And, and then it helps people a little bit. So I've watched you share little pieces of your story on Instagram specifically, but on social media. So you're sharing it publicly in pieces. And I have not as your writing coach, but as a another woman and as a mother and as a follower of your Instagram account, I have responded. And so many people have responded by saying exactly the things you're talking about. Like, thank you so much for sharing. This makes me feel less alone. Your advice is so helpful. Your This is incredible wisdom. And then at the same time, you have this book proposal document that you and I have finished together and you're pitching to agents and hoping to pitch to publishers. And you're in this limbo phase. You and I talked about this maybe a couple of weeks ago where you're waiting for an agent to represent you who will then pitch you to a publisher. And it's kind of this like purgatory, I think of it for authors where you can, it's really easy to lose hope because you're receiving a lot of rejections and, you know, sometimes it's not even rejections. Sometimes it's just, you send out dozens of emails and nobody responds. Can you tell us how you're navigating that part of this process? Because I know so many authors struggle with this and I think your perspective on it is really wise. The reason I'm getting through it right now is because I will say anyone who wants to write a book or do a book proposal, you cannot do it alone. Like the honest truth is that my other friends, female friends that are writing a book or have written a book or completed a book proposal and you have told me this is normal. Otherwise, (laughs) I, the truth is, is that if you're writing, I'm writing a memoir. And so I think that agents and publishers want to see giant social media accounts and you're active every single day and you're doing, I'm just not a social media influencer and I'm using air quotes in the sense that I can say, you know, I do all the social media influencer things. I'm very present on Instagram. I talk to everyone that follows me and I feel like I have a really strong connection with my followers, but I'm not a professional Instagrammer. And so the pressure to become that has felt like that gets more amplified than actually writing. And so sometimes I'm like, I hate social media. I don't know if you've seen the social dilemma. I just watched it. Everyone should watch it. Watching that makes me feel like a little less crazy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you told me, you know, it's Instagram today. It's going to be something else tomorrow. And it is just this like hamster wheel a little bit where you feel like you have to keep being relevant and catch up and have an opinion on, on this thing when you really don't even know anything about this thing. Yeah. But the thing that is saving me is just don't do it alone. You cannot write a book alone. Um, Has that been true for you? Like, can you? Okay. I think one of the greatest misconceptions about book writing in particular, the writing life in general, but book writing in particular is People think that writing a book is this thing you do all by yourself. They have this image in their heads of somebody who escapes to a cabin in the middle of the woods and they turn, you know, like 
all by themselves out in the middle of nowhere, they have this stroke of inspiration and the book shows up on the page. And that, I, I don't know if there was maybe a time in history where that was true or maybe more true, but present day in the year 2020, I've helped hundreds of authors write books. I've written 12, 13 now on my own. And there's never been a time when the book has gotten written that way. It's always a team effort. You have not just the author, but you oftentimes have co-writers on the book or content contributors. You have editors, you have, you know, like a sales team, a marketing team, you have other people in your life as the author who are contributing to the idea. You're bouncing it off of friends, you're bouncing it off of other professionals. So, you know, like if I think of the team of people who are behind me when I write a book, it's like at least 10 people. And that doesn't even include my readers who are absolutely essential to the stories that I write. So, so you're right on that. It's a very much a team effort. Yeah. I mean, you, we can't do anything. We like to pretend like we can do motherhood alone and we, you know, struggle and becoming a wife. And we, sometimes we like to pretend like we are great in our marriage. And I think the book writing experience has taught me anyone who's pretending like they have got it all together and they don't need help is a liar. Like we cannot do any of this alone for sure. So, you know, it's funny that you brought that comparison because you often hear time, hear people talk about like birthing a book or your book baby or whatever. And I've always rolled my eyes a little bit at that, at that comparison, <laughs> but I will say now having published a couple of books and had a baby, the comparisons are really, they're yeah. very, very, a very strong comparison. <laughs> yeah, because you're the one writing the book, right? Like you're the one pushing the baby out. Yeah. And you've got nurses and doulas, yeah. midwives, and, and all the people that you don't even see, like keeping the lights on at the hospital yeah. or wherever you are. It's yeah. so true. It is so, so true. So now you have this book that is, you're waiting for your opportunity to be able to publish it and share it with the world. It's a beautiful story, by the way. I can't wait for you to find the right home for this book. What do you hope when people read this book, what do you hope other people gain or learn from hearing about your own transformation? On the surface, the the story is my, my journey into motherhood. And I think that a lot of women who want to become moms, and there's even aspects of becoming a wife and finding your purpose in there, but underneath all of it, it's a story of a woman learning to trust herself in order to find freedom. And I know that any adult woman breathing air can resonate with that because there is so much pressure. We as women, a lot of times look outside of ourselves for the answers. And this book is just a reminder that even when it feels countercultural, the answers are truly inside and I want every single woman to know you can trust yourself. Your voice is such an important one, Brittany. And I've been so grateful to be able to support you to get this book into the world. And I now love following you on Instagram. I know you hate being on Instagram, but I love following you there. I regularly text you or Marco Polo you or, or whatever, however many ways we communicate just to tell you, mm-hmm. thank you for what you're sharing on Instagram. So I hope that everybody listening to this will go follow you on Instagram. What's your Instagram? Off the top of my head. It's let me look. Brit Ross or something. Brit underscore Ross 108. Perfect. Everybody go follow Brittany on Instagram. You'll be very glad you did. 
Okay, we need to start wrapping things up, sadly, but I'm curious what your writing routine and writing life looks like now. Do you have like a what you do before you sit down to the computer? Yeah, so my writing routine changes as you add more babies. It, <laughs> that's why I'm really looking forward to not adding any more babies, but I, I love to write in the coziness with tea. And I do, I am one of those people that needs like a really pretty, a good calming aesthetic. So I can't write when like my house or space is a mess. I like to, for it to be calm because I feel like I'll write from a place of peace if what I'm looking at is peaceful. And all I really need is like blue blockers, tea, and my computer or even my phone. I mean, I'm one of those two that will like stay up late at night and be reading yeah, and then you realize actually I've read you know one paragraph in a book and I I have something to write now, and so I'll just pick up my phone while I'm laying in bed and write something and save it for later. That's amazing. Yeah, you do get this is another misconception I think people get about the writing process is that it has to be this one certain way. And I think to your point, the more responsibilities and chaos you add to your life, you know whether it's babies or whether it's something else the more you have to just find a way to write in those little margins when you, of course it's helpful to, if you can have, you know, a scheduled writing time, or if you can create that rhythm of discipline in your life, it's very helpful. But in seasons like having a new baby, when there's very little space for discipline or routine, it's so important that you find a way to capture those little in between moments, you know, like three minutes before a meeting or, five minutes while you're waiting to pick up your, your kids at soccer practice or while you're holding a baby with one hand and your phone with another and they're nursing or whatever, or falling asleep. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And I have deadlines for myself too. I, that's also really important. Otherwise I will not stick to them. And I, if I don't have someone like holding me accountable for that deadline, um, like you or Annie, then I am like, Robbie, I have to read this thing that I wrote to you by Friday. So make sure that you ask me so that it feels more like I owe someone something because I will stick to a deadline. Okay. Final question. What is it that keeps you writing? Uh, I will go insane if I don't. I, <laughs> most of the time when I'm caught up in uncertainty or stress, you know, we're, my husband and I are going through this like thing right now with a friendship that I just can't move past. And and I know the reason why it's because I haven't written about it. And so I think that's why I attach so much to your message is that the power of writing does change your life. I think a lot of times when we have all of this stuff hidden in our heart and in our mind, most of it works itself out when we just get it out, whether you're saying it out loud or whether you're writing it, you know, for me, and I think for a lot more people than they even know, writing it down is so helpful because it just helps you make sense of your life. Brittany, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with the world. Thank you for trusting yourself enough to write down your story and to wait in this limbo period for the right person, the right team to come around with you and support you in getting this book out in the world. Thanks for trusting us and me, the Find Your Voice team, to help you with that. And I just want you to know that we are so supportive of what you're doing. I think the world of you, I'm just so excited to see how this journey all unfolds for you. 
Thank you so much, Allie. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Find Your Voice podcast. We hope this inspires you to pick up a pen and start finding the words that will change your life, your community, and your world. If you liked what you heard today, share with a friend, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and if you haven't already, check out our website, findyourvoice.com. Subscribe to our Monday Motivation for free and get inspiring writing prompts in your inbox each week. Until next time, happy writing.